Hey, this is Joe Yerke from The Insiders, and you're listening to my chapter on As the Story Grows. Welcome to the next chapter of As the Story Grows. I'm Brian Patton. This week on the show, Joe Yerke from The Insiders. I wanted to talk to Joe because he was there when Ska boomed in uh, Christian music. It was the one time where the Christian and mainstream got a hit at the same time, and I wanted Joe's take and perspective. The conversation ended up being even more interesting than I thought it would be. As Joe talks a lot about record label politics being thrust into a scene you didn't really intend on being a part of, and what happens when faith, art, money, all comes together. Uh, (laughs) And uh, it's a good episode. So I hope you enjoy this week's conversation with Joe Yerke. So, so I guess my big question for you is how how are you a Boston Bruins fan? <laughs> oh, that's that's an easy one. So the Detroit Red Wings. So I live in Detroit. I'm yeah, like the Red Wings are my team. Um, and so growing up, the Red Wings were in the Eastern Conference. So I had like my Eastern Conference favorite, and I had my, I mean I'm sorry, they were in the Western Conference, mm-hmm. and. So I had my Western Conference favorite, and I had my Eastern Conference favorite. My Eastern was Boston. And so a few years ago, the Red Wings went over to the Eastern, and it sucks because now they're in the same conference. <laughs> uh, same division, even. Yeah. Yeah. So so I always root for the Bruins unless they're playing the Red Wings. Then, then the Wings got to beat them, but gotcha. lately they haven't. I saw your I saw your Facebook pic and I was like, why is he wearing a Boston Bruins jersey? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And and for the last few years, I mean, the Red Wings haven't made the playoffs, so like the Bruins are my hope. So that it's it's been fun rooting for them come playoff time. Yeah, yeah. I always look to the Red Wings because they currently uh, have Mike Green and now they have uh, Madison Bowie, former Capitals. So and and I love oh, sir, guys, you're, so. you're a big Cat fan. Oh yeah. Oh, nice. Yep. Yeah, that's not a, that's yeah. not a shabby team to root for. No, no. I mean, it, it was there for a little while, but <laughs> right, been pretty good yeah. the last few years. <laughs> yeah, not too bad. Yeah. Well, hey, um, I'm stoked to talk to you because um, insiders, man. I mean, one of the the big quote-unquote big three of the the ska bands and and christian music um i was looking at your wikipedia page which i know was not always accurate and it kind of threw me off did you guys play creation festival in 1996 am i making that up uh we did not play we did not play creation until 97 
Yeah, not probably 97. And the creation we played, because uh, I can't remember which one was first. There was, like, creation in Pennsylvania. And then they did, like, I think that was the original. And then they did, like, creation yeah. West Coast. Yeah, yeah, so the first, but yeah, the first creation we played, I think, was 97. Okay, okay. So I'm just, I, I'm making it up in my head that you played 96. Because I, I believe Five Iron played in 96. And the, I know the Supertones played in 96. And I, I must have just gotten a sampler cassette tape, which I have somewhere, that has Trigger Happy on it. Um, and that is how I heard of you guys, but it was like a ska, the beginning of the ska explosion that year. Sure. Well, the thing is, we we all graduated high school in 1995. So the summer of 95, we were, you know, just kind of like doing whatever and kind of like, I think we started the Insiders that fall. And then... Okay. So the Insiders started, like, the summer, fall of 95, and then, um, so it would have been summer of 96 that we played, uh, I think that we played, what's it called, um, Cornerstone for the yeah. first time, and so that was, like, all we played that summer. Like, we played Cornerstone because we went as, like, campers. Like we weren't we weren't a part of Cornerstone and that was kinda like the like little story, the little legend of the insiders was we were supposed to play at Cornerstone ninety six. Um, we were supposed to play the tooth and nail stage. And the tooth and nail stage their generator broke. Oh, and man. Yeah. And so their generator broke and so we weren't able to play like our, our spot on the stage obviously wasn't available and then when they got their generators up and running those bands that were in the normal slots played you know what i mean and yeah. so we we ended up getting a generator from somebody just somebody at cornerstone and we ran it at our campsite and we set up and we played at our campsite and that's kind of how we how we started someone happened to be walking by heard us and then that kind of got us our first record deal, that type of thing. So that was that was summer of 96, and that was the only thing, um, like, we did that year as far as, like, Christian festivals. We played that, and then the rest was, like, coming back home, um, you know, planning an album, playing local clubs, you know, th that type of deal. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, my timeline is all screwed up. <laughs> that happens. You 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 forget, man. <laughs> the years all blur together. All 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 the bands and shows they all blur together at this point, right? Yeah, absolutely, they do. Let let's go let's go farther back. What got you into music originally? Um, growing up, my family was always like very musically inclined. My uh, grandmother on my mom's side, she played piano. Uh, she kind of has the kind of like the same backstory as like a Jerry, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis. Like, she was raised playing piano in the church, and she played piano for the church. And when church wasn't going, she would sneak in to the chapel and, like, play rock and roll. She'd play the boogie-woogie, as she called it. And But that was, like, illegal to do, and she could get in big trouble. So she would just kind of do that stuff, like sneak in and play on pianos, like rock and roll, wherever she could. 
and she uh, she actually toured. My grandmother did in a in a gospel band where my grandma played piano. My great aunt, her sister, played, I believe, upright bass, and then my great great grandmother, their mother, played mandolin. And so they were like a little traveling gospel trio around the South. So like music was always very prominent in my house growing up. Like my mom was always listening to like records and tapes and, you know, in the car. It was just music, music, music. And so for me, it was just kind of the same thing. And, you know, just kind of grew up, you know, always listening to it. Always had that as like a fantastic outlet. And... You know, when I hit, like, my late elementary years and then got into, like, junior high, like, um, you know, my faith really started to take hold. And, and then I was, like, listening to, to, you know, all sorts of different styles of music. I didn't even really know, though, that there was a Christian music scene. You know what I mean? I yeah. just thought you, you made music and you sang from the heart. And whatever came out of your mouth came out of your your mouth. I, I didn't, again, I didn't realize there was, like, an actual scene uh, for, for Christian music. And so that's kind of just how that started. Like ended up going, you know, getting into high school. I met our drummer and our original trumpet player, um, you know, Nate Shogren and Al Brown and me and Nate started talking. He was in a hardcore band and he was selling seven inch records of his hardcore band. And I saw someone with them and I was like, what's that? And they're like, oh, this kid in our grade is in a, is in a band. So I asked him what it was, and he was like, oh, we're kind of like a Christian hardcore band. And I was like, I was thinking, like, oh, my gosh, I thought I was the only Christian in this school. And so uh, that struck up the, the friendship between Nate and I, and and then it just kind of took off from there. Like, I was trying to be cool, and because he was in this hardcore band, I was trying to be cool, uh, trying to show him that, like, hey, I know underground music. And I had just recently heard uh, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones um, Someday, I suppose. And so I asked him, I'm like, have you ever heard of this band called the Mighty Mighty Boston's? And Nate knew all about it. And from then on, like, he kind of introduced me to all these other ska bands. And at that point, it was probably my, it was probably winter of my sophomore year. So it was probably 1993, winter of 1993, that, like, ska just, got in me and and i don't think there's a day goes by that that i don't listen to some some sort of ska band peg from the the dingies was on recently and he was talking about the same thing where it's like yeah ska just gets you and, and takes hold of you and it's it's what you love which is the same thing you hear from hardcore guys or metal guys right it's like that's the genre of music you connect with and it's like for life <laughs> yeah and it is it's, it's usually like that you're like middle teen years like, whatever grabbed you as a middle teen and, like, whatever you, like, identified with, you're hooked on that for the rest of your life. I mean, you can, you can listen to other things. I mean, I go through my, my phases, like, in the summer. Like, I like to be up north on the lake and, and just chilling, you know, an ice-cold beer in your hand, listening to country music. Or there's times <laughs> where, you know, you, you feel like throwing in some Jay-Z or some old-school Tupac. Yeah. But... You know, I, I just always come back to, to Scott. Like, that's just, I just love it. Man, this world's going down the tilts. With cans of guns and drug abuse. For the moment, what you got to lose. Extend a hand, do what you can do. This is my cry, this is my plea. To make a better society. 
do you wanna see inside of me? Wake up and smell the That's awesome. So the Insiders were your like first and only band. It sounds like. Yeah, first and only band, man. I wasn't. I mean, obviously, you can tell from my voice. Like, I wasn't in choir, and I wasn't in like any of that stuff. Like in school. So when Nate and Al and I started talking about doing a band and doing a ska band, um, you know, here Nate plays the drums and and Al plays trumpet. And they start putting all the pieces together, and like you know, for for about a day there, I was like, oh no, like I'm gonna get left out. Like I, I play guitar, but I don't play it good. Um, and I was like, man, I'm gonna get left out of this thing. And so they they just assumed that I was going to be the singer, and I was like, okay. And <laughs> like it was just like first practice. Okay, I guess I'm the singer, and uh, you know. The, the garbage that came out of my throat is I as I guess the way I sang. <laughs> I, I, it's so funny. Like there was never anything about the way you sang or your voice that like was weird to me growing up. Like listening to hardcore, it was just like, oh, that's just how he sings. But I remember like some mom I knew being like, "Is he being?" It was in the Scaluya like that era where she was like. Is he mo- is he mocking worship? Is he mocking God because of the way he sings? It's like no, that's just the way his voice sounds, and it was very funny at the time. Yeah, I, when we put out soundtrack to a revolution, um, some magazine did a review on the album, and they said that I sounded like a Muppet on crack. <laughs> is is was the the exact quote? Joe Yerke's vocal sounds like he's a Muppet on crack. And I was like, eh, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> so it didn't really bother me. I mean, I guess it, I mean, it is what it is, you know? It's so funny because I never thought that, even still listening to your music, I've never thought, like, your vocals sound out of place or weird. But out of <laughs> Well, I mean, you grew up kind of like, where'd you grow up? D.C. Okay, so you grew up with that that East Coast. I mean, you had the hardcore movement out there. You had East Coast um, punk. You had all that stuff. So, you know, I like I kind of grew up with the same thing. Like with the Midwest, you had the Boston's from the East. So you had Dickie Barrett's voice, and then in the Midwest we had Slapstick, um, right? With with Brendan's voice. We also had Mustard Plug out of Grand Rapids, and I forget the lead singer of Mustard Plug. So, like, they all kind of had these, like, gravelly, you know, like, kind of like crazy voices. And, like, when I was growing up, I mean, I guess I was like every other kid. Like, before you know any better, you just listen to whatever's spoon-fed to you from the radio. And, I mean, I didn't sing like anybody that I heard on the radio. You know, when I'm singing in my bedroom and stuff like that or trying to sing to it in the car, I mean, my voice didn't sound like those guys. So, like, I just thought, like, you know, in my brain, I was just like, well, I'm I'm never going to be a singer, so I don't have to worry about it. And then the opportunity arises to sing, 
And it's funny because, like, when you listen to, like, the Insider's demos or, like, our early songs that we wrote, like, we would be in the studio and, like, the engineer, the producer, you know, whoever, would be like, you know, don't sing like that. You got you to gotta open your throat up. You got to – and they're trying to, like, give me, like, vocal lessons. And yeah. so a lot of that early stuff is, like, me trying to – you know, me trying to sing like Stevie Wonder, you know, it's like, dude, that it's not going to happen. And so as like the progression of the albums go, you could see the like, you know, the the style of my voice kind of becoming, you know, what it, what it should have been, where it should have been, what it should have sounded like. And, you know, kind of like the more like natural, you know, oh, this is insider style. Like I didn't, I didn't actually think my, my true voice was captured on an album until um, Soundtrack to a Revolution. Like, Soundtrack, I can listen to each one of those and be like, that's my voice. Like, that's my voice on there. All the other albums, there was always a song or two where, you know, some some producer or someone thought, no, you know what, I'm going to get him to sing it this way. And So I never really, there's always a few turds on all the albums and some people say all of them are turds but you know there's a few turds on on the albums where i'm just like i don't even want to listen to them because it's like not my voice it's like me trying to just like imitate what the producer was telling me to sound like yeah good old good old uh record label politics motor city scott uh was that one on squint or was that i'm trying to remember what label was motor city on that was gumshoe records who who ran gumshoe Gumshoe was ran by, man, who was it? I can see his face. I forget who it was. <laughs> I forget the guy's name. I'll probably remember it once we hang up the phone. Um, oh, it was run by a guy named Michael Sean Black. Okay. And Ma- Michael Sean Black was like a dude from the, the Christian music industry who, you know, kind of started a side label. And I believe what he was trying to do was, like, kind of start this. He was kind of at the forefront of, like, oh, there's, like, there's this emerging, like, underground punk Christian scene, you know, instead of, like, your Amy Grants and your Stephen Curtis Chapmans. And he was kind of, like, on the forefront of that. And I think he was trying to, like, sign. His plan was to sign bands, like, you know, underground punk bands and stuff like that. And then sell that whole package to a major label mm-hmm. and to be able to say, Hey, you know, you guys for X amount of dollars, you can buy my whole roster and take it. And now you guys have kind of like an underground punk division of your major Christian label. And so I, we were like the first band. I think we were the first and only band that like got put out and, uh, and then, you know, like after he did it, I think he realized like, oh crap, I'm in over my head here and things didn't go as planned. And so the yeah. label just kind of died. It, it's funny. Cause like, as you go through the timeline of the insiders, we're the kiss of death. Anybody <laughs> who signed us, their label went under. It was just, it, 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 it just bankrupted them. They could have been fortune 500 company. You signed the inside. It could have been Sony music. Sony could have signed us bankrupt. Well, it, it is funny because, yeah, because later, later you were on Squint. Uh, 
roughly around the same time, I guess, I mean, I guess it was two, three years after, but after Squint had the success of Kiss Me and Sixpence None the Richer, and yeah, they folded shortly after that, too. Right, exactly. And they had Chevelle. So, like, yeah, oh, we, yeah, got Chevelle, Chevelle, yeah. we got Chevelle signed to Squint. And so what what happened was the, the Squint deal, we were involved in... Obviously, like obviously, like um, a court issue with Gumshoe. So, Gumshoe is no longer a record label, but they wouldn't release us. So we're like, okay, so some dude sitting in his house, we signed a contract with, but he has no intentions of running a record label anymore. Or maybe if he ever gets some more money together, maybe five, ten years down the line he's going to put out another album? Like, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Yeah. And so somehow, somehow Squint, Steve Taylor liked us. Somehow he was able to negotiate a one-album release. So we signed a deal with Squint to do the Scalleluja album. And so that was the one-album release that, Gumshoe said, okay, they, they can do this album with you, and that's it. So we did our one album with Squint, and then – so we did our one album, that was it, that was done, and then they folded. <laughs> and then along came this guy named Buddy Killen, who was this multimillionaire, started um, a publishing company. He, he – he, at some point, he played bass for Elvis Presley, started a publishing company, got Elvis to do, um, do like, put in the ghetto or something, like, on his publishing thing, and it got him going, and so this guy, Buddy Killen, becomes a millionaire, and he throws his hat into the Christian music scene, and he starts kill. it's called KMG, Killen Music Group. Yeah. And so he... He says, I want the insiders as the cornerstone of this record company. So they go out, and basically what he did is what Shawn Michael Black wanted to begin with. Like, they were like, we will buy, you know, your gumshoe stable, which was, I think, only like two or three bands. And so with that came our contract. So I think we still had, like... I think we still had like two albums to go or three albums to go. And so cause I think we signed a four record deal. And so we had three albums to go. So they, they bought gumshoe records and then obviously dissolved like the, the, the lawsuit like went away and we stayed with them. And then we did fight of my life. And then we did uh, Skyliluya 2. And then without us knowing to fulfill the contract of the fourth album, without us knowing, without us ever being told, they put out an insider's greatest hits mm -hmm. that they called, like, Tales from the Comet or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was funny because a kid from my church... Like, I'm in church one day, and this kid comes up. He's like, hey, I got the new album. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, our, 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 you know, like, our last album came out, like, three years ago. He's like, no, you just had, like, a new album come out this week. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And, yeah, he 
goes to his car and gets the CD, and, and that's what it was, like our greatest hits with, like, these never previously unreleased songs on it. So that was our uh, that was our deal with, with that. That's how that went from Gumshoe to Squint to KMG, and then KMG folded. So when you guys hit the scene, when when Motor City Scott came out, when you were coming up, did you know or have a sense that like this Scott thing was going to be as big as it was? I mean, it was kind of exploding in the mainstream right at the same time. Like it's the one time the Christian scene in the mainstream kind of hit at the same time where like that sound was big. Did you guys know it was going to be the phenomenon it was? No, I not at all. Because, like, from day one, like, the scene was really good in Detroit. And so it was just a fun scene to be a part of. And we just tripped and fell into it. Like I said, we, we never intended to, like, be a Christian scene band. We wanted, like, from day one, we said, let's start a band where we can minister to kids that don't go to church. And that's what we wanted to do. When we played in Detroit, we, we didn't play Christian shows. We played with, um, you know, we played with like normal mainstream bands that came through town and, and we got to hang out with all these guys and, you know, just play normal shows. Um, there was a club, uh, that was close that was called, uh, Clarenceville Hall. It was about a half hour from where we lived and they would put on Christian shows and we would play those because it was an awesome club. Um, <laughs> And, you know, so other than, like, us being kids being like, oh, yeah, at this club you can't drink, you can't smoke, you know, they they kind of look after, you know, look after it a little bit more than, like, just like an all-ages club, like mainstream club. But, I mean, we we didn't get ourselves together to be a Christian band. And, um, you know, so, like, when we were starting and stuff like that, we were just a band that were like, oh, sweet, you know, the more – the more ska bands, the more punk bands we play with, or the more people that we get to hang out with, and the more people we get to hang out with, the more people, you know, we get to kind of share, you know, and, and have this ministry with. And everything just just blew up, and everything just, you know, kind of happened so fast, and it just seemed like, uh, you know, every door was just being opened, like, on a weekly basis. You know, there was something going on, and, you know, whether it was, like, you know, the, the supertones playing with somebody or getting a video on MTV and then five are jumping on like a warp tour or something like that. It was, you know, it was, it was really cool. And just like this huge explosion that was, you know, still to this day, I just kind of look back and I'm like, man, I kind of don't believe that that happened. Yeah. Was it, was it weird to, to be grafted into this ginormous Christian scene all of a sudden? It was. It was very yeah. weird because, and, and this is where, um, 
this is where people have tried to, I don't want to say tried to debate me on it or anything like that. There's not really a debate to it, but I will always tell people that we never intended to be like a, and I hope this doesn't sound like rude or, or anything like that, but we never intended to be like a, a Christian, like pep rally band. Like we, we never intended to be like a, you know, go into churches and play for churches or play Cornerstone or like we never intended for our audience to be kids that were Christians. We wanted our audience to be kids that didn't go to church. So we wanted to play the clubs. If you're not going to go to church, if this kid doesn't have an opportunity, doesn't have a home church, didn't grow up with that, we want him to come see Mustard Plug or we want him to come see, um, you know, the you know, the, uh, MU330, and the insiders open up for them, and they kind of hear them, you know, hear a different message and, 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 you know, something like that. That's what we intended for the insiders. But in doing so, as we practiced, like, when we got together for our first practice, we didn't know, like, what sound we were. We didn't know, you know, we had never played together before. We had never written songs, so we didn't just show up on day one and have, like, ten original songs ready to go. So what we did is, because most of the band, we all went to church together, we played our praise and worship songs, and then what we called scod them up. Yeah. So all the, like, normal, you know, so that that's how, how we practiced. So we practiced playing praise and worship songs. Well, then, once we practiced, we kind of figured out our style. So then when we started writing original songs, we also started getting shows at that point. So we would show up at a show, and we would have 20 minutes to play. Like, we'd open for some band. We'd have 20 minutes. We'd play the three original songs, and we would have, you know, eight minutes left. So, like, one night we, like, look at each other, and we're like, you know, they, you know, they're kind of, cheering and you know the one more song type deal so we're like uh i guess let's just play like a praise and worship song so that's what we did we like brought so we'd start playing praise and worship at the end of our sets even in these like dark nasty clubs we played mm-hmm. some like skinhead bar and we'd end our show with like a few praise and worship songs well because of the machine and because of the thing that is christian music like, once you're out there, the feelers find you. And, like, you get grabbed onto and you get pulled into that scene. And if you try and fight that current, and if you try and, you know, it's like the Death Star, like, pulling you in, like, with the tractor beam. Yeah. <laughs> if you try and fight that, you look like an a-hole, you know? And and you look like you're this person who's, like, embarrassed embarrassed about God, embarrassed to share your faith. And you could you can look down the list of, like, bands where, like, that happened to them, you know, where they started out in the Christian scene and they tried to go mainstream. And just because you're trying to go mainstream, you know, the kind of the Christian media thinks that, like, oh, you're not Christians anymore then. Why would you want to leave the Christian music scene? So for us, we kind of got hooked by this, the Christian music scene like tractor beam and it pulled us in. And, and after that, where it, where as our praise and worship was 
done when we started to bring that music into the secular clubs, the mainstream clubs, what ended up happening was our praise and worship is what drew the Christian scene to us. And then, you know, people wanted to book us for that. And then we became this, this pep rally band. So whenever there was, you know, whenever there was something going on, let's bring in the insiders because they do this, you know, this great praise and worship. You know, nobody like remembers our original stuff. No one cares about our original stuff. If you look on iTunes and stuff like that, like the top songs are all the like praise and worship stuff. So like nobody really gave two craps about our, you know, our <laughs> original stuff. And we ended up becoming this, this band where night in and night out we're playing churches and we're hyping up kids that already knew Christ. And I guess it's like, I guess it's something uh, in, in my life that I've had to deal with where like, um, you know, like a child actor will be a, he'll be a child actor and he'll play a part, but he'll be rem like Macaulay Culkin. So he'll be remembered right. <laughs> for that part his entire life. So Macaulay Culkin will be 50 years old, but he's going to be the little home alone kid. He's going to be Kevin McAllister. Yeah. And so Kevin McAllister has made Macaulay Culkin rich. It's made him famous. But there's probably a part of Macaulay Culkin that hates that he ever took that role. And it's what I've wrestled with in seasons of my life. Like, you know, like there's been times where I kind of thought the insiders was a waste because we got caught in this Christian bubble and we weren't able to do the mission and the vision statement, you know, and, and fulfill the vision that we thought we had as a band. Mm -hmm. And then there's times in my life where I accept it and I love it. And I say, hey, you know what? What happened happened. And that was God's plan. Like, what happened, happened, and, you know, hopefully one person, uh, you know, accepted Christ into their heart because of our music, and, and hopefully there's more in the kingdom because of us, and I'm cool with it. But I guess it usually depends on the mood that, that I'm in as, as far as, like, you know, I always think, like, well, the insiders could have been so much better, but we got stuck doing this, and everybody... Everybody just wanted the next Scalleluja album. Like, we could probably still be pumping them out. You know those compilations that are like, like wow hits or now hits? Yeah. And they're on, like, wow number, like, 64. Like, we could probably be on Scalleluja, like, 25. But, you know, we, we didn't want to do that. Like, that wasn't what we wanted to do. And so that's what, uh, I don't know if I answered your question. No, yeah, that's that's great. No, you you didn't want to release the ska version of Oceans, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, but which which would, would have been a big hit for you, I'm sure. Uh, right. Yeah. 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 No, it's it's kind of a kind of a, a similar story. Like just doing this podcast, so many artists. It's like I don't I don't know how many people back in in the early mid '90s were looking to do quote unquote Christian music, but it's like the interest was there and you signed the deal and people know you for that, but it's like it limited the scope of what you could do. And it's this double-edged sword of like, it was, it was good, but it was not what we wanted. Right. Right. Well, I think, you know, it's funny you saying that it's something kind of hit me that I've never really thought of before. 
it's like as artists, it's you look at it as a way to continue to further your career. Hey, I could be signed as a Christian artist. I could be signed as a Christian label, and I could move from this step to the next step and keep going up. The problem is the people that back you and the financial support of those Christian labels, they don't support your vision. They support their vision. And their right. vision is, Scalleluyah sells albums. Like, we can, we can print X amount of CDs because every church across the country is going to buy the CD. Every church is going to buy the CD, so when our youth group walks in for, you know, Wednesday afternoon or Sunday evening service, we're going to have this playing. We're going to have the best music collection. So, like, record, like the record labels could just automatically ink in, like, we're going to sell 60,000 of these units. Easy. Just the churches, let alone individuals. But the thing is, like, they push their agenda they don't push the artists or they didn't support the artists. Like, like your labels like Tooth and Nail and Five Minute Walk, those were different. Like, those were ones that supported the artists, that were there for the artists. They ran a business, but they let kind of the artists pick the path that they wanted to go down. Like, Brandon Ebel from Tooth and Nail wasn't like – he wasn't telling people, like, this is how you got to do it. This is where you got to be. These are the shows that you got to play. These are the lyrics that you have to sing. Like, he did none of that. He let the bands be the bands, and then he marketed and sold those bands. And so, like, that, I think that's kind of how it goes. Is like, you know, you're a, you're a Christian. You, you know, it, it, your faith is inside you. And like I said earlier, like, when you write songs, you just write from what comes within. So if one song I want to write about a girl that I broke up with, in the very next song, at that time I was feeling inspired to maybe sing about my faith, so be it. But then, like, the record companies are like, you know, cha-ching. And then once you're in there, if you decide, hey, you know what, we're not going to play any churches this year. We're going to do clubs. Well, suddenly, like, the the money that, was available for your next album isn't there, you know, and the record label's like, oh, we're not going to do an album this year. We're going to wait. We're going to see how this last album tracked out, you know, and then you're like, okay, I see what's going on here. And, like, those are, like, the games that, that happen. We always told ourselves, like, when we were, you know, 17-year-olds putting the band together, we told ourselves, just like most probably do, when this when this stops being fun, when this is a job, Let's stop doing it. Because it was just fun. Like, you know, your first couple tours, you like, I've, I was, like, never outside the state of Michigan. So it's like you travel all over. You meet all these people. You see all these places. It's so much fun. And then, like, the machine gets bigger. And then suddenly you're paying a booking agent who before, like, our drummer booked all our shows. And now yeah. we're paying a, a, a booking agent. And then we're paying a road manager and then we're paying a real manager. And then the fees go up because now we have three people booking for us. And then at the end of the day, you're like, dude, I'm 18 years old. I'm legitimately paying for like five people's like lives. Like they have wives and kids and mortgages. And 
you know, if we, like, turn this show down, that's this much money that they need to pay their mortgages, to pay their gas bills, and the pressure, it's like, dude, this just isn't, this isn't fun. You know, it's it's not fun to make decisions, like, based like that. You know, it's fun to make decisions on, you know, like, heck yeah, let's go play the show. And But the ones that we were saying, heck yeah, we want to play this show, which would have been for, like, uh, 300 kids in Myrtle Beach, we couldn't play because we had to take the big, you know, we had to take the big one with the big Christian band where it was guaranteed, you know, 8,000 kids there, and we'd open up for newsboys, you know, because we needed that money to, you know, to pay everybody. So that's where it just got like, oh, my gosh, this is overwhelming. So you put out Soundtrack to a Revolution on Floodgate Records in uh, 2003, which I agree, like, that record is is easily, I mean, at the time, but your best work. It, it was a complete album, it felt um, like you were hitting your stride. And, and then you disbanded. What led to the band breaking up? Well, we did Soundtrack to a Revolution, and, and there was a, there was a punk band, a local punk band that, I mean, they're national, but they're from here. They're called the Suicide Machines. And so that was like a band I loved growing up. Their bass player left, and he was the one. He Somehow we got connected with him. His name's Royce Nunley. And uh, Royce had a studio in his house. So he brought us in to do soundtrack. And... It, that was the first time that, like, I went in there and, you know, we're asking him, we're, we're kind of waiting for him to tell us and, you know, tell us what to do and tell us, like, you know, how to play certain parts of the song. And we weren't getting any feedback from him. We're like, you know, so finally we're like, dude, are you going to, like, at any point kind of, like, tell us what to do? Because that's what we were used to. And he was like, why would I do that? You guys are the band. All I do is hit record. And so that's why I love soundtrack because it was just, it was the first time the insiders were just kind of like off the leash, off the chain. And if we asked him for advice, he would give it. And he always gave great advice because he was part of the, you know, one of the greatest punk bands of all time. And so like, that's why I love that album. Um, but I'm trying to think. I always go off on these tangents. I'm trying to think of the question that you asked. What led to the band disbanding? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so what we had done is when, like, when we stopped touring full-time, we all got real jobs, right? So you got to have a real job to pay the bills. Well, then once you're locked into these new bills, it's hard to just cold turkey go back to living on the road when the sky wave had already crashed. Yeah. So around around that time, I think it was about 2005. I think it was 2005 that we did Soundtrack to a Revolution. And the insiders, like people in the Christian music scene, knew who we were, but ska had become the, the punchline to jokes. 
and ska just wasn't cool anymore. You know, mm-hmm. the, the next big thing was up, whatever, you know, flavor of the year. And so we basically got together because I had written a bunch of material. Um, insiders guys, we had, like, gotten together for something and, you know, just kind of talked each other and talked about it, like, hey, I think we could do this. So we talked to our old manager, Tim Tabor, who ran Floodgate, and he was like, dude, I'll, I'll do your CD. Like, just, we, I mean, we didn't even have to ask him twice. We told him, hey, we have this idea. Here are some songs. We kind of did demos. And he was like, absolutely, I'll put it out. So he put that out, like, real simple, and then I think they ended up folding. So, <laughs> yeah. so he put that out, and then, so we basically put that out. We did, like, a few festivals, but we couldn't tour on the album. And obviously that's what record labels want. They're investing their money. They want you out there playing that music at, you know, at shows, at festivals. And we couldn't do that because we all had jobs and we had families and we had babies and we had pregnant wives and and all that. So we put it out, and even the shows that we played – they just they just weren't big anymore. Like people didn't come out to insider shows. People weren't coming. Like if we played festivals, like people were at the, you know, the POD tent because POD was huge, mm-hmm. and the insiders were just like, you know, oh hey, I remember my older brother used to listen to those guys, and so you know we just kind of put out the music, kind of did what we could for, for that little bit of time, and then we all went back to our jobs again. And then, uh, yeah, and then down the road, um, you know, Sinner Songbook came, came back around, you know, years later. Yeah, what made you guys want to put out another record? That was, um, that was like nostalgia for us. So what I had been working on is I had wanted to do a solo uh, a solo album, and so I was working on the concept of a of a I guess like a solo band called the Bulldog Spirit, and so I had written all these songs on acoustic guitar, and I was like, you know, this is going to be for for my album. So I was putting it together. So I needed drums. So I called Nate, and I'm like, hey, would you listen to this? Would you be able to throw some drums on? You know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, get in the studio and see if I can record this as like a solo thing. So I sent it to him, and a couple of days went by, and then, like, he sent it back and was like, yeah, it's good. Like, I, I kind of think it could be, you know, we could really do some of these songs really good, like, insider style. And so I was like, yeah, I don't know about that. Like, I kind of want this to be kind of like my acoustic-y, you know, type <laughs> deal. And then, like, a couple other guys, like, I don't play guitar all that well. I can play guitar enough to write a song, but not to, like, stand on stage and, like, play a guitar. So I called, you know, again, our guitar player. Hey, would you play this on the album? And then I'm calling our bass player. Would you play this on the album? So here's the rhythm section of the insiders listening to the songs that they're going to be playing anyway. And everyone was like, dude, these songs are insiders. Like, we can do these. Like, these don't need to be acoustic songs. And so we started fooling around with it, and pretty much the Sinner Songbook is my album, like my solo album of 
what would have been, you know, the Bulldog Spirit. Yeah. The Sinner Songbook is that album. And so, like, the guys, you know, normally in the past, like, we'd write and, you know, everybody had their input. And I feel like on Sinner's Songbook, that was like, um, kind of like the band giving me the rope. Like, I was either going to hang myself or not. Like, if, if they question something in a song, they would, like, ask me. They're like, this is your song. How do you want it? And so I had never had that kind of, like, creative control before that. You know, in the studio, it was always a producer telling me something. Or it was, you know, we had a guitar player who was, like, a total metalhead. And so he would always, you know, come up with things and songs that I'm just like, oh, my gosh, this sounds terrible. Like, I don't want this in there at all. But it would go in there because everybody had their input. And so Sinner's Songbook was kind of like my project that I was able to share with the guys, and, and they kind of like, you know, did their deal. And, and if, if they kind of strayed too much from the boundaries, they'd be like, does this sound good? Do you like that? And, you know, I was able to get feedback. And so the the album, The Center Songbook, is like what I, I love it. I love it from the first note to the last note of the album. Like, I, I love that album. And I think that one means more to me than than the others. That's cool. Was it always your intention to have uh, Reese and Mojo on the record, or did that kind of come up with the Kickstarter? Yeah, that kind of came up with the Kickstarter. So I had... I had all the songs, like, written except Sinner's Songbook. And so Sinner's Songbook was, like, the last one we wrote, and that one was, like I said, not a part of what I had already written. And so that was kind of written while we were all practicing. And I was like, man, you know, this would be cool to get, like, you know, Reese in here a little bit and then get get uh, uh, Matt on here, you know, doing some rapping. Um, and with the center songbook, like I said, I was able to work with people who I love and who through touring, like, you know, I became, you know, friends with, or just really, um, respected their work. So like Matt Baird from spoken, um, like for him to be able to be on angel of death. Um, so the angel of death is the last song that Hank Williams senior ever wrote. So we covered that and, Matt from Spoken to have him on there screaming and having those vocals. Like when I heard that, I was stoked. Like when, when the, you know, when his parts came back and were put on, Oh, I was so happy. And then, um, yeah, it's in her songbook to have Matt and Reese, you know, same thing. Um, I wanted to get, uh, Jeff and John from, from squad, but I, I couldn't find, I couldn't find a part on the song where it would have went. And, like, where their vocals would have um, not just been thrown on there, you know. Um, so it was just fun, like, having so many people to, like, kind of, like, do stuff with and kind of some friends locally around that album. And so it was just it was just a ton of fun, like, getting everybody on there, people that I wanted to work with. And, and I think the kids call it collab with. <laughs>
do you miss it, man? Do you miss do you miss the band life? You know what? I don't miss band life. Um, yeah. Last Friday, uh, Five Iron played Detroit, and yeah. so I went and hung out with them during the day, and at night. Um, Whenever we used to play with them, they would always have me come on stage, and, and I would sing every new day with them at the end of the show. So they had me come on stage, and I got to go on stage and, and sing every new day with them, and I got to be a rock star for, for three minutes that night, and it was the most fun, and I got off the stage, and all these people who, you know, the whole show, I'm standing out in the crowd, and... You know, once they get up on stage and then do that and got off, everyone's like, dude, you're the lead singer of the Insiders. And suddenly it's like, you know, people are taking their pictures with me and, you know, shaking my hand and all that stuff. And so for for a brief moment on last Friday, it was fun to be that guy again and to kind of get like a little bit of attention and all that stuff. But I don't I don't miss it. Like you could probably tell when you listen back to the, you know, when you listen back to the, the this interview, I don't miss at all, like, the label politics. And I know music has gone away from labels now because of the Internet. But, <laughs> like, I just, because that was my, that was my reality. I, I was, you know, we weren't playing music in, like, the the Internet generation. We were still with labels. And so that's all I remember, and it's such a sour taste in my mouth. And, you know, stuff that happens on band life and, and people you tour with and, you know, just things like that. I'm, like, I'm so happy being a dad now. And, you know, my, my daughter's a cheerleader. My other daughter's, like, a fantastic, like, painter and, and singer. And I just love doing dad stuff. I, I love my job. And so I go to work every day. It's not even like work. I come home. I, you know, I hang with my kids and stuff. And that's, that's what I love doing. It was cool to do that one song with Five Iron. But to do it, you know, every weekend or to go back out and tour again, I think I would be miserable. Thanks for listening to As the Story Grows. Our theme song was written and composed by the legendary Bob Nana. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes and give the show a rating and review. If you'd like to support the show financially, click on the Patreon link at asthestorygrows.com. If you enjoyed this episode, share it on social media with your friends. Much appreciated, and thanks for listening. Started a song.